listening to NL Newsday with Jeff Andreas. All right, thanks for tuning in to NL Newsday. It's Thursday, July the 15th. The time right now is 4.40. Now, right now, across the province of British Columbia, we have 310 active forest fires. 109 of those right now are burning within the Kamloops Fire Center. So, yeah, we know the fire situation is extreme right now. It's happening early, almost a month earlier than it normally would. Uh, some 200,000 hectares have already burned. Normally around this time of year, that number would be at about 60,000. So we're well above where we would normally be on an average year. We also, of course, are just getting over that, ex- that extreme heat wave that we had to deal with. The heat dome, if you will, that we know claimed hundreds of lives across this province. All of this, of course, is happening as a result of climate change. And we're starting to really, really feel the impacts of that in 2021. Not that we haven't felt them before, but they seem to be worse than ever, at least in my experience at this point in time. So to talk more about all of this, I'm pleased to welcome to the program now the leader of the BC Green Party, Sonia Firstino. Sonia, how are you here this afternoon? I'm doing pretty well, Jeff. I'm I'm really, you know, my heart goes out to you, to everyone in Kamloops and really across the interior right now. Uh, the conditions sound really terrible and uh i'm i'm just want you to know how sorry i am for what you're enduring right now no i'm sure we all appreciate that uh you know it it hasn't been easy um we've had some some scary moments over the past couple of weeks hasn't been too too bad right now within the city of kamloops when it comes to fires threatening our community but uh, they're burning all around us threatening lots of pockets and the air quality, of course, in our community right now is just horrendous at this point. So I appreciate those kind words to start things off. Um, before we get into the actual issue of climate change, because we're going to get there, I just wanted to start with the possibility of declaring a state of emergency right now. Mm-hmm. I know the official opposition, the BC Liberal Party, has been calling on the NDP uh, to call a state of emergency in relation to the wildfire situation. I just took a brief call here from uh, the, the chair of the thompson Nicola Regional District. They just had a meeting this afternoon where they voted unanimously uh, to to call on the province to declare a state of emergency from wildfires. There's clearly this push out there to see this step being taken, mm-hmm. and yet we haven't seen it yet. What's your stance on this? Yeah, we actually called on the province to declare a state of emergency last week. We reiterated that call earlier this week. Uh, I'm frankly quite surprised and concerned that the province the provincial government isn't making the decision to basically free up all available resources to respond to what is clearly uh, a serious and growing emergency across the province. And so, you know, this would make it easier to get firefighters to the front, to get resources to put, uh, you know, maybe we don't need cooling centers, but I think fresh air centers for people who are really struggling with uh, the smoke on the ground, for example, uh, and and just acknowledging that the impact that these fires are having uh, on people's lives right now, it is an emergency for people. Why, why do you think there has been a reluctance? I mean, do you, do you have any reasoning that you can grapple with in your mind as to why this hasn't been done? It seems like a pretty simple step. Um, it would just help to cut some of the red tape that goes into calling for more resources, and yet... 
It hasn't been done to this point. You thought it might have been done when we were in the midst of that heat dome and we didn't see anything there. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of people lost their lives. Here we are a couple of weeks removed from that, and we still haven't seen this step being taken. And I just can't grasp or comprehend as to why. I can't either, Jeff. I, I mean, you know, I, I really cannot understand why uh, they haven't declared a state of emergency at this point. And I, I, I hope it will happen soon. In 2017, it was declared on July 7th. Um, and this fire season is definitely outdoing that one already. Uh, and we need to, as you say, it frees up resources, it removes red tape, it, it creates a more nimble response uh, capacity. Uh, and that's what we need to see right now. All right. Well, uh, I hope we see something come on that sooner than later. There's been a lot of calls and a lot of pushes for it. And, and that step, of course, as mentioned, yet to be taken. We'll see if something happens soon. I know the calls are not going to stop on that regard. Let, let's get into the issue of, of climate change, of course, that has really, that, that's what we're seeing. The culmination of, of years upon years upon years of, of us kind of ruining the atmosphere, ruining this earth and um, obviously, it's having a massive impact here right now. We look back to the spring we just had. It was one of the driest in a century in the B.C. interior. And now, of course, that, that has not helped our fire situation. We almost should have been able to predict that we were going to have a more severe year, given just how dry it has been. Um, I'll, I'll start with the, the easy question here. I mean, probably not surprised that we're seeing this. I mean, there's always a little bit of surprise when we're talking about the severity of things, but... I mean, mm -hmm. this isn't really shocking that we're dealing with this type of a fire situation, is it? No, I mean, this is, you know, what what scientists and experts and climate modelers have been indicating for decades is uh, that we're going to increasingly see exactly what we're seeing right now, these intensified heat waves and weather events. Uh, and, of course, that contributes to the conditions for the kinds of fires that we're seeing and, and you know, pyrocumulonimbulus clouds. I mean, this is something that I think um, most of us 30 years ago, 40 years ago, somebody said, we're going to have fire seasons that are so severe that they create their own weather systems. We would have just stared back as if that person was describing another planet, but we're here. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, where we need to go now is um, to recognizing that we cannot wait for towns to burn down as we tragically saw in Lytton. We have to act <laughs> very rapidly to create greater resiliency and ability for our towns and communities to be able to withstand these conditions and these uh, impacts from climate change. And, uh, you know, and, and then we need to look at how do we make our, our communities more resilient to climate change, but also more socially cohesive. Because as everybody knows, in an emergency, we rely on each other enormously. So how do we build up that, that you know, what exists already informally and, and particularly in smaller towns, we know each other, we look out for each other. But I think we need to recognize that with the emergencies and the unpredictability that climate change is going to create, because that's really what it's taking away from us. It's, it's going to increasingly rob us of certainty and predictability. And so what we have to create are structures, 
social structures as well as infrastructure and uh, in our communities that buffer us against that uncertainty and give us that capacity to take care of ourselves and each other importantly each other in these uh, in these kinds of uh, emergencies and conditions yeah so uh, just kind of interesting to hear you say and put more of an importance right now on on our abilities to handle disaster um you know i i I obviously want to get, talk a little bit about how or what steps we could take as a province to start to, to reverse climate change, which you know is mm-hmm. no easy task. And we have some tools in place that I don't know how effective they are, but they do exist. But I, I just found it interesting that you seem to be putting more of an emphasis, and it makes sense right now, on the being reactionary to ever-changing weather events as opposed to you know, stressing the actual issue of, of trying to reverse climate change. I, I, I just found that interesting. So mm-hmm. that that's sort of where, where you think the priorities need to be right at this particular moment. Well, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's <laughs> no secret where the Greens have stood on, on climate change and climate action. Uh, you know, the, the Green parties uh, have come into existence around the world uh, largely in response to seeing the political inaction on on climate change. And, you know, we have long been calling for a dramatic uh, response to this global emergency that we're in. And that starts with recognizing we've got to get past a fossil fuel economy and to a zero carbon economy as quickly as we possibly can. And... We are not going to escape these impacts. They're here. And so at the same time, and this is, you know, me as a human being, as a mother, a community member, I also see how essential it's going to be that, that we create that social cohesion and resiliency because we are going to need each other uh, in the coming decades. And we are going to need to learn to really recognize how important community and connection is as we weather these uh, these storms. In your time in provincial politics, I'm, I'm just curious, have you noticed that uh, there seems to be a lot of attention paid to it when actions or, 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 or events are taking place? Right now we're in the midst of a brutal fire season. Mm-hmm. 2017, we were in the midst of a brutal fire season. There was a lot of talk about what we need to do to try to fix what was going on. But then you know, the winter comes along, we got the fall session opening up, and it seems to... I don't want to say take a backseat, but it's definitely not the mm-hmm. main talking point anymore. I mean, it has to really remain front and center if we're going to be taking this seriously. How, how worried are you that, you know, once these events pass, that again, once again, they could take a bit of a backseat? Yeah, it's, it's a perpetual concern. And I look at the budget that was released this spring. And when we were reviewing it in, you know, the few hours of budget lockup where we're all getting our, our first view of it, what I was so shocked to see was uh, how little um, attention was paid to climate change in this budget. And I think that, you know, from my point of view, the lenses that we need to apply to all of our decision making and all of our spending as governments right now are the lenses of addressing climate change and inequality. And these are the two greatest challenges that we face collectively right now. And to have a budget that comes out and doesn't really, you know, it's peripheral, uh, it's it's kind of an afterthought in a couple of places in the budget, that's a real indication of where government is at. And I think that 
as you say, you know, we can't let this go to a back burner. Um, and I, I think back to 2019 when uh, the NDP brought in Bill 10, which is the bill that allows for a massive uh, sort of tax credits and subsidies to LNG Canada. And the efforts that uh, my colleagues and I in the Green Caucus uh, were went to, to to try to convince our fellow elected officials that we cannot be subsidizing oil and gas in, in 2019 or 2020 or 2021. We have to take those funds, put them into the transition, train workers into renewable energy, build a renewable energy infrastructure in all of our communities. It contributes to resiliency. It contributes to what we need to do, which is dramatically reduce our emissions. Uh, But it also contributes to an economic transition where where there are long-term sustainable jobs uh, that come from that. And I, I, you know, there were a few times in those days in the legislature where I just, I was crying uh, at, at the thought of, you know, 84 out of 87 MLAs voted to give somewhere in the neighborhood of $6 billion to the fossil fuel industry of taxpayer money. Um, well, we are very well underway in a climate emergency in this world. Yeah, um, you know, and when we talk about the the tools that might be out there right now to try to combat it, things like a, a carbon tax, you can debate the merits of whether or not that does anything. Uh, we have the the targets for uh, electric vehicle sales and things like that, which are you know nice to see. It's nice to have those targets, but we know we're we probably just aren't moving quickly enough. And uh, not probably, mm-hmm. we're definitely not moving quickly enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it is frustrating. I guess you know was, when when we're coming out of COVID nineteen right now, we're trying to see a, a rejuvenation of our economy and, and reboot it and start to find different ways to make sure people are getting back to work. This seems like an opportune time to be making some of those transitions from that uh, oil and gas economy to an electric and into a, mm-hmm. a, um, a more energy efficient economy. Uh, how confident are you that we're going to see that be a priority as we uh, you know try to recover from from the pandemic here? Well, I think we've got some uh, some heartening and hopeful uh, action in Europe. Uh, you know, they're they're demonstrating uh, a level of seriousness in in their response and investing in in that transition. And and really, that's what it's going to take here. One, you know, we need to be honest about uh, the real implications. And and you know, your listeners right now are experiencing. Uh, some of the real life implications of climate change right now. Um, And we need to be serious about what it's going to take. And it's not incremental, you know, it's not, we, we, we can't, it's not, we're not going to electric car our way out of this crisis. It is about a massive transition. And that can sound very terrifying and worrying and challenging. And how do we do that? But we have to come to grips with the fact that we're running out of time and there's not much choice left. Uh, what we owe to our children and our grandchildren uh, is to make that transition and to invest what it takes to do it and to ensure that when we do it, we're building a more equitable, compassionate, just society on the other side of this. That that has to go hand in hand with, you know, what is 
the world that we want to leave to our grandchildren? What do they deserve from us right now? And, and I think that that's what they deserve. I really appreciate everything you've had to say, and thank you so much for joining me on this, Sonia. It's a very important conversation, and, and there's a long way to go in, in continuing to have these talks, so I really appreciate your time. I did want to ask you just one thing kind of off-topic while I have you before I do mm-hmm. let you go here, um, but today uh, the B.C. government did announce a policy on the prescription of safer drugs as alternatives to the toxic street supply, $22.6 million policy phased in over the next three years. Um, I just saw you uh, on Twitter right here. You You said that this is a small step in the right direction, but what we need is a leap. And I really like the way you phrase that. Mm-hmm. Just what, what would you like to see? What further steps do you believe need to be taken? This is a, a, a nice piece, but it doesn't go far enough, I guess, in your mind. Yeah, the challenge that we have with this, this step is, is that it still relies on, on a prescription model from doctors. And there are very few doctors in, uh, in, in BC, frankly, that are, really willing to participate in that, in prescribing safe supply to people. And I think that there are other models, and we pointed it out in our response today. There's compassion clubs and co-ops. But, uh, you know, the the reality of we are losing between five and six British Columbians every single day to a very toxic drug supply right now. And, again, it's an emergency. We need to respond to it as though those lives matter because they do. And we have to say, you know, we let us first and foremost stop this, the, the severity of death and damage and harm that is happening right now. And, and, and then look to, you know, ensuring that people get help and treatment that they need and support and housing, all, all of the other pieces need to be there as well. Um, but we have to recognize that there is a lethal, illicit drug supply right now that is killing British Columbians every single day. Sonia, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I, I really always appreciate you coming on the program. You always have some great uh, great things to say and some great talking points to take away. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for this. We'll definitely have to catch up in the not-too-distant future um, and, and the lots to break down there. So really appreciate your time um, and, and your kind words for us here in Kamloops as well. So thank you so much. Thank you, Jeff. And everybody, take good care of, of yourselves and each other. Take care. Take care. That is Sonia Furstenau, the leader of the B.C. Green Party.